everyone. I'm doing something different on the show today. I've got some listeners' questions, and I'm going to answer them. Now, bear in mind that I'm not an entomologist, so if I've got something wrong, then do let me know, because I, chances are I, I probably have. Um, but before we start, I've got a promo for a podcast by my friend Daniel Adams for his show, How to Enjoy Experimental Films. And in it, he interviews producers of experimental and abstract film. It's challenging something to come out of your subconscious. Try to go in there completely open. I I can't think of any other form of film that can get you angry quicker. If you're not happy about it, get angry, but also ask questions. It's super accessible. You just have to sit down and enjoy them. There's there's nothing difficult about it. To enjoy experimental film, I think you need to see it in the theater, see it with people. Talk about it. Meet the filmmaker. You're going to have an experience which is quite different. Enjoy the sensory experience as it unfolds in the moment. The honesty is what people should be drawn to. Most experimental filmmakers I met are extremely honest. I want to encourage people to, you know, if not if not try and make films, just to see them. There are so many interesting films out there to see. then let's get started with today's show. We've got several really, really interesting questions, so thank you so much to all of you for sending them all in. I've got a couple sent by voicemail, but most of them were sent in as written questions. And my first question comes from Nigel. He asks, do ladybirds hibernate? So, yes they do, although not every ladybird hatched in one year will end up doing so. For example, the full scene spot only lives around half a year on average, so only those from later generations will usually end up hibernating. He also asks, do ladybirds just eat aphids and similar insects? So it really does depend on the ladybird. Yeah, most of them do eat aphids, but a lot of them eat fungi and pollen. Some of them eat plants. And even those who mostly do eat aphids will eat other things from time to time. For example, seven spots will sometimes eat fungal spores, pollen, and even sometimes some fruit, if they're really, really desperate. Jim asks, how far will a ladybird travel in its lifetime? Do they just find a good leaf and settle on it, or will they set off on a grand adventure looking for juicier green fly? So... That really depends on the ladybird and the conditions it finds itself in, as well as the species. For example, the 24-spot ladybird, in most cases, is unable to fly, and it will stay in the same area for most of its life. But the 7-spot ladybird is often quite mobile, and it's even migratory, and it sometimes flies from the Middle East up to Cyprus, and even further, like into Europe during the summer. And a lot of the seven spots that we get here in this country, in the UK, will have arrived from France. They'll have actually flown over. 
so it so it really does depend it depends on the species and it depends on how much food it has and i mean the seven spot can sometimes stay in the air for up to two hours at a time as i think i said in my first uh, episode got a bit of an odd question here from paul he asks would a ladybird eat a flake of human skin so if it is particularly hungry it might try and eat your skin or bite you yeah um the notorious summer of 1976, when there was um, basically a huge infestation of seven spots, there were so many seven spot ladybirds that they actually did run out of food and they did actually try and bite people on that year because there were no aphids, because there were so many ladybirds that they just ran out of stuff to eat. I've got to emphasise it's incredibly unusual. Um, they're, they're not going to eat you. Don't worry. It's Susie here from the Casual Birder podcast. I was wondering if you could tell me what plants I should have in my garden that would help ladybirds thrive. So it does depend on the ladybird and which ladybirds you're thinking of, but try and have a good mixture of plants. So, for example, conifers are good for ladybirds, like some of the ones I've talked about recently, like the Eye ladybird and the Cream Street ladybird. Nettles are basically good for any species, especially the seven spot, 14 spot, harlequin, two spot. Although you might actually not want to have too many nettles in your garden for obvious reasons. You might not want to be stung. But ladybirds like the pine ladybird and cream spot really like fruit trees and two spots and ten spots really like roses. And... If you've got some umbilifers like cow parsley, these can actually help attract 22 spot ladybirds. And if you've got a grassy area, that can attract 16 spots, 24 spots. And I'd actually try and plant a lot of native species of plants in your garden as far as possible. We found that sage is very good for attracting ladybirds, like the seven spot. Um, skimless interrupters, sometimes the pine ladybirds, and if you've got any white bryony, that could actually attract the bryony ladybird, but it can actually end up choking up your other plants, so just be careful about that. Basically, just have a mixture of everything, and if you do find plants like a nettle or something, which, you know, don't feel too bad about pulling it up, you know, as long as you've got like some patch of your garden that's like basically left to do its own thing, it should be alright. But if you if there's like some plant that you really don't want, like don't feel don't feel too bad about about getting rid of it. As long as you've got like a good mixture and like try not to uh, to use pesticides and all of that, which leads nicely into the next question. Carter asks. What are the best ways to encourage ladybirds in the garden? Not just the basic things, but also the basic things. Are there any extra steps we can take? So, first of all, I would say, as I've just said, have a variety of plants in your garden. There's no one plant that ladybirds necessarily like or don't like. Definitely don't use pesticides and... For example, if your roses or whatever get hit by an infestation of aphids, 
resist the temptation to try and get rid of them yourself. Like, just leave it because the ladybirds really benefit from having a lot of aphids around and in the end your your uh, your roses will, will thank you and don't use leaf blowers to get rid of leaf litter especially don't hoover it up either sweep it into the flower bed or just let it stay there like let it stay there as much as possible i would say that's because some ladybirds and also some of their food sources will actually use it to hibernate and it can really end up messing up a whole ecosystem if you go overboard with the leaf blowers and, and things. You don't need to do that. I'd also say don't be too like overzealous with weeding, but there is a bit of a balance because sometimes plants can turn up as weeds, especially non-native species, and they can end up choking up everything else. So, yeah, like leave them, but also if if one plant just ends up taking over everything, like just don't feel bad about it getting rid of it because especially with with things like nettles that can end up taking over, like there's plenty of nettles around, like as long as you've got some little patch that's just left to left to do its own thing, it shouldn't really matter. Don't feel like you've got to keep everything, just try and plant native plants and have made different lengths of grass so for example the 16 spots particularly like long grass whereas other ladybirds are happy in like sort of shorter grass and that so they also like dandelions so maybe don't rip up all of the dandelions from your lawn basically just try and have a mixture of habitats in your garden as far as you can so danny asks what genetic variation in humans means that some people can smell ladybirds and others cannot? So I don't really know of a variation within humans. Of course, there are a variety of reasons why you might not be able to smell a ladybird. Some people do have a naturally better sense of smell than others. Some people are born without a sense of smell or if their nose has got damaged over the years, I might be wrong, but I think sometimes if someone is a heavy smoker, then their sense of smell can get impaired over time, and that would affect their ability to uh, to smell things such as ladybirds. So, as we all know, unfortunately, there's certain illnesses such as COVID, but also sometimes the common cold that mean your sense of smell is lost or is weaker than usual. So, those might all be reasons that. Are that are affecting your sense of smell there might be a genetic factor i don't actually know i'd be interested to, to find this out um and of course there yeah um there's lots of medical reasons why your sense of smell might have uh, might be weaker as for ladybirds themselves they tend to give off chemicals such as pyrazines when they're threatened or attacked and these pyrazines tend to be very very strong smelling and the chemical components of these do vary. So some types of ladybirds will smell less strongly than others when they're disturbed. So, for example, the 16-spot and larch ladybird do release these chemicals, but they rely much more heavily on camouflage as a form of self-defence, so they might not smell as strongly. And it's also the case that if a ladybird has been attacked 
or injured recently, it might not be able to produce that many of these chemicals, or it might it might not be able to release them very much for a while. So if you find a ladybird, don't assume that there's something wrong with you if you can't smell it. It might just be it doesn't feel the need to release the chemicals, or or maybe it's released them anyway, so it's kind of like it needs to replenish them. So don't don't think that it's you not being able to smell it. Charlotte asks, are there poisonous ones? Yes, there are, is the short answer. In experiments, it's been found that the orange ladybird and the pine ladybird are some of the most poisonous ladybirds out there, whereas the larch ladybird was the least poisonous. This study only applied to the UK. When the scientists have fed blue tit chicks and other birds, ladybirds as an experiment, if this occurs over a long period of time, the birds can actually end up becoming quite ill and even dying. Although some birds do seem to eat ladybirds as a normal part of their diet, like I've seen pictures of woodpeckers carrying beaks full of ladybirds to to their nests. But even if you do find a ladybird and it releases its reflex blood or tries to bite you, the reason it's doing that is because it's just stressed and it, it, it wants to get away. And it's in much more danger from you than you are from it. And if you eat a ladybird, the chances are you wouldn't even get as far as swallowing it because they just taste so bitter and disgusting. If you do eat it, the chances are at most you just feel a little bit sick. So in terms of being poisoned, you've got nothing to worry about. But this is actually the reason why ladybirds have got spots and are brightly coloured. It's to warn potential predators that they're bitter tasting and don't eat them because they're poisonous. David Howden asks, what do you think will be the next species of ladybird to colonise the UK? So that's a very good question. I've got no idea. I think the next species of ladybird to colonise the UK might be Anepia conglobata. And I wouldn't really call it a colonisation, to be honest with you, because it's already found naturally in Europe. And all it would be doing would just be extending its natural range. It's a very pretty and slightly pink ladybird around the size of a two spot. I'm going to do an episode on it at some point. Um, but yeah, look it up. It's it would be it would actually be incredibly cool to find one. There have been a couple of them found in the UK, but they've never really managed to establish a uh, a sort of a proper breeding population here. But maybe in the next few years. Hiya, hidden wings and bloodlust. How you doing? I have a question. How come sometimes when you find ladybirds, they're all huggled and snuggled together in huge numbers? Why do they congregate like that? Is it a ladybird festival or something? What's going on? What What is it? There are a number of reasons for this. I'm actually going to do a whole episode on this. In fact, it was the episode that I'd originally planned just before the listeners' questions episode. Um, and that will now be released like the following episode from this one. So ladybirds tend to congregate where other individuals are or have been, and they can be found in the same places year after year, 
either because they've detected where other ladybirds are through pheromones and so on, or because they've just happened upon it and think other ladybirds are there, so it must be a worthwhile place to stay for the winter. It's also very important to ladybirds to keep dry, and that is one of the main ways they protect themselves from disease, because fungal infections are more likely to spread when it's damp. So that's a huge factor in where they chose to uh, to overwinter or hibernate for a few months. It's also very important for them for a food source to be accessible when they wake up. Some people have suggested that it's for warmth, but this isn't really an adequate explanation when the amount of heat they produce is so small and the areas that get chosen are anything but warm. You'll find ladybirds in all sorts of weird places like gravestones or fence posts or, you know, just places where you would not really, ex- where you would not want to be for a long period, like let alone for months and months. So a very important reason is actually the issue of safety in numbers, because if an animal finds a group of seven spots, let's say, and eats one of them, then it's just very likely to avoid all of them because of the bright colours and bitter taste, whereas a lone seven spot on its own might be much more risk of getting eaten. Thousands of really brightly coloured ladybirds send a very visible signal to a predator and will deter that predator from, from eating the ladybirds. So finally, another important reason why ladybirds end up congregating in the same place is it so that when they wake up in the spring, so that when they wake up in the spring, they'll be able to find other ladybirds to mate with much more easily. It's also worth remembering that they don't only cluster together in the winter. I've found them in periods of cold weather during the summer, and it's even possible for them to uh, go into a sort of hibernation, it's called Easterbation, in periods of very hot weather. So, like, for example, last summer, I actually found a group of 24 spots and seven spots just in a curled up leaf just like resting on the leaves anytime the the weather sort of turns cold or turns damp they they will sometimes do that kate asks i was just interested in what substance it is literally antifreeze to keep them from freezing during the winter is it literally antifreeze and how it works Do all species have it? So this really seems to depend on the ladybird, but there's a few ways they can get through the winter. I did find one paper that talked about chemicals that might play a role in how ladybirds are able to super cool themselves during the winter. And it's mostly glycerol, plus it's a mixture of other proteins and carbohydrates, including inositol and myo-inositol. And those chemicals have also been found in overwintering flies and other insects. In two ladybirds, Harmonia axoridis and Ceratomegilla undecimnotata, Harmonia axoridis is of course the harlequin and Ceratomegilla undecimnotata is a European ladybird that's not found here in the UK. But in these two, Myoinositol levels are low at the beginning of overwintering or hibernation and peak after around three months. So this sort of suggests that it's um, playing a role in how they um, how they regulate their temperatures. 
ladybirds are able to lower their body temperature to get through the winter months. The large ladybird, Aphrodecta obliterata, will lower its body temperature down to 30, down to minus 30, to minimise the consumption of energy for months and will reduce its respiration rate. The ladybirds will burn fat reserves to stay alive. These are mostly glycogens and lipids. And ladybird species that overwinter in leaf litter or close to the ground are much, much more sensitive to changes in the temperature and more likely to be affected by it than species that overwinter in very exposed locations or on bark crevices. Ladybirds that have accumulated enough fat reserves are generally much more likely to survive the winter than those that haven't eaten enough. Larger ladybirds actually use up less of their fat reserves during this time than smaller ones. One study in 1975 found that seven spots used up half their fat reserves on average, whereas 14 spots used up 70 and two spots 75%. She also asks, oh, and are all species active on sunny winter days or are there some that are more likely to be found? So I'm not sure. I think that a lot of ladybirds will emerge on warmer days and perhaps warm themselves up in the sun and drink water. That can include any of them. But the ladybirds that are already overwintering in more exposed areas, such as the 16 spot and the 7 spot, or which breed and mate later on in the year and they can withstand colder temperatures, might be a lot more likely to be active. For example, the orange ladybird often only breeds in like sort of October or even November, and it doesn't always seem to go fully dormant. It's often active. The pine ladybird is sometimes known as the dormouse ladybird because it's up and about much, much earlier than others, sometimes in sort of mid-February. So the final question comes from Megan. She asks, Hello, I think I've got a reasonable question. I know a lot of insects are being impacted by climate change, which is destroying and dislocating habitats. Is there any evidence of ladybird species adapting in any way to changes in habitat, etc., by global warming? So, yeah, that's a really good question. Unfortunately, yeah, some ladybirds have been severely impacted by global warming, notably Hippodamia arctica, which used to be found in much of Europe, is now only found in northern areas of Scandinavian countries. This isn't just due to the current global warming, but just changes in the climate in the last thousand years, especially it's got rarer in like the last hundred years or so. There are also ladybirds found more commonly in cold climates, such as the larch ladybird, whose population seems to have got reduced or have got much less widespread. So the large ladybird has got a lot rarer outside of um, outside of Scotland. But there are a few examples where a ladybird has managed to adapt to the change in climate. So, for example, it's usually the case that a seven spot needs to go through a period of what's called diapause or hibernation before it's um, developed enough to be capable of breeding. And you're now getting cases where increasingly where the ladybird has evolved not just to not need this period, but it can also breed a few times a year, which didn't used to be the case. They used to have to hibernate before they could um, before they could breed, and it is still usually the case, but sometimes increasingly it's, it's not. So you're getting much more than one or two generations a year. Additionally, 
seven spots in the UK don't usually go through this diapause phase in summer. They usually hibernate when in the winter when it's cold. But in Spain and in warmer parts of the Mediterranean and North Africa, although all the ladybirds there are exactly the same species, they do go through a period of what's called Eastervation during the summer to get them through hot weather. So that basically looks a lot like hibernation, except it's hot. So that's something you might see in future increasingly in the UK. There are also a few species which, as the climate has warmed up, are now found in areas where they didn't actually used to be. So, for example, the Adonis ladybird, which I talked about recently on the show, is common in southern Europe and it's becoming much more widespread in the UK. Similarly, the briny ladybird feeds on white briny and that's generally found in warmer climates in Europe. And as this plant has sort of established itself in the UK, as the weather's got warmer, the plant has been spreading and the ladybird, which feeds on the plant, has been colonising areas, mostly in the south of England as well. So, yeah, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. And thanks to everyone who sent their questions in. I'd also like to thank Gary Golding and Richard Comont from the group Ladybirds of UK on Facebook for their help with this episode. If you want to find out about the different ladybirds and get some expert knowledge, identification help and so on, that's a really great group to join. Richard is also the author of the book Spotlight Ladybirds. All my other sources will be listed in the show notes. If you like the show, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram at 365.ladybird, or follow me on Twitter at Podcast, or like my Facebook page, Hidden Wings and Bloodlust. Music at the start of the show is by Deborah Torrance. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now.